Well, welcome back. Oh, we're on air. Obviously. We're on air. Two Peas in a Podcast. No, oh, oh it's not called hold Two Peas in a Podcast yeah. anymore. That's right. We are still Two Peas in a Podcast, the yes. two of us. Yes, yes. However, mm. drum roll. Yeah. The winner is of the Name the Podcast goes to Shane Hauser for his, I think, five or six votes. It was pretty, it was heavily represented. <laughs> landslide. Uh, yeah, landslide victory for Ghosts of Magic. So, uh, yeah, so it's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, pretty, uh... To go some magic. Yeah. It's, Shane it's will have name. a little prize for you. That's right, yeah. So, Shane, what we're going to do, though, is you're going to have to listen to the podcast to know you won. So, uh, I've got the prize at my desk. Just come and get it as soon as you hear that you won. <laughs> Great. <laughs> nice. Um, so, this week's reading, under a little bit of time pressure today. <laughs> yeah. We've got the uh, yeah, round robin in uh, 42 minutes. So, we've got a short guy here. Hopefully we'll be able to just crack it out. Yeah. You've got some information on the author there, I see. Yes. So the one that we're going to read is by Cornell West, Keeping the Faith, Philosophy and Race in America. Hmm. And Cornell West, from his website, is a prominent and provocative democratic intellectual. He is professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University and holds the title of Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. He's also taught, he has also taught at Union Theological Seminary, Yale, Harvard, and the University of Paris. Jeez. Yada yada. Busy. He, yeah, he is a busy, busy guy. Um, he, he's got some really good quotes. Um, one that I like is, you can't lead the people if you don't love the people. You can't save the people if you don't serve the people. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. I, uh, I like a quote of his as well. He's all, this guy's all about the love. Cornell. He I'm is. Looking forward to, I'm looking forward to this reading. Uh, my Cornell West quote is, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. That's a good one. I like this. He's, uh, you know, he's really kind of setting the stage here for something, something interesting. So... So, again, a fairly short reading, but we will... Uh, Can we read the preface? Preface? <laughs> preface? Preface. Yes, sure. That's... Uh, <laughs> the difficulty of keeping faith in Ethiopia, specifically. Ooh. As I sit and watch the sunrise over the mountains of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, my mind recalls the powerfully moving ceremony of two days past. A ceremony in which my loving mother, I reject the term in-law, Haragawain Ola, mm. transferred her house to my wife, Eleni and me. This extraordinary woman was born into one of the great families of Ethiopia. She is a direct descendant of Bulo, leader of the Ormo people, who wedded the sister of Menelik II, the 19th century creator of modern oh, Ethiopia. Wow. Three days before the Italian invasion in 1935, she married into Grand Amahara family, Gabri Amlak. That is a sentence. That yeah. is a sentence. Um, <laughs> she owned thousands of acres of land, estimated to include significant portions of Addis Ababa itself. Um, lost all but one house through. Sorry, I lost where I was there. Lost all but one house through the uncompensated confiscation of lands and properties under the communist regime. And now lives with dignity and Christian humility in one of the most culturally rich, yet economically impoverished countries of the late 20th century. The ceremony lasted five tearful and rip-roaring hours. With my brothers and sisters, Gasha Milliard, Sewasu Sirak, 
Selak, and Eleni, we shared personal stories interwoven with national narratives that highlighted the courage and integrity, as well as the failures and farewells of the matriarchs and patriarchs of my Ethiopian lineage. We concluded by kissing the feet of our beloved... <laughs> of our beloved. <laughs> of our so, so they wrapped up <laughs> with a little bit of foot kissing. I, I guess we weren't actually supposed to read the preface. But it's anyway. nice to know that uh, he has some Ethiopian heritage. Yeah. Like, that's what nice I got from that. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and yeah, it was there. It was doing things. It's great. Okay, so I guess we jump into the main reading then. Yeah, chapter three. After that, a note on race and architecture. There is a new energy and excitement among the younger generation of architectural critics. Theory is now fashionable, and interdisciplinary studies an absolute necessity. The next decade promises to be a period of intellectual ferment in precincts, precincts, once precincts, sinks, sinks. <laughs> What's a precinct? Precinct is. Look it up. We'll look yeah, it up. Another yeah. one of those words that I know what it means, but I can't explain. Right. It's like a section of something. Okay, I'll jump into the next paragraph. A district of a city or town as defined for oh, police purposes. like a precinct. Yeah. A precinct. Precinct. God, this is, this is getting off to a clunky start here. <laughs> yeah, maybe restart that sentence. The next decade promises to be a period of intellectual ferment in precincts once staid and serene. Architecture, the, quote, chained and fettered art, is the last discipline in the humanities to be affected by the crisis of the professional and managerial strata in American society. This crisis is threefold. That of political legitimacy, intellectual orientation, and social identity. Like their counterparts in critical legal studies in law schools, feminists, post-structuralists, and Marxists in universities and liberation theologians in seminaries, Oppositional architectural critics are turning to the works of Antonio Gramsci, Raymond Williams, Stuart Hall, Michel Foucault, Edward Said, Sheila Robotham, and other cultural critics to respond to this crisis. Only ever heard of the one of them. Foucault. (laughs) Anyway. And though we are in the embryonic stage of this response, intense interrogations of architectural practice will will deepen. The political legitimacy of architecture is not a question of whether and why buildings should be made. Rather, it has to do with how authority warrants or does not warrant the way in which buildings are made. Architecture, viewed as both rigorous rigorous discipline and poetic buildings, is often distinguished from other arts by its direct dependence on social patronage and its obligation to stay in tune with the recent developments in technology. Yet architectural critics are reluctant to engage in serious analysis of complex relations between corporate firms, the state and architectural practice, state and architectural practices. The major fear is that of falling into the trap of economic determinism, of reducing the grandeur of precious architecture to the grub of a pecuniary avidity. It's another one. That I'm pecuniary. It sounds like a, a bad place, though. <laughs> and surely the forms, techniques, and styles of architecture are not reducible to the needs and the interests of public or private patrons. But this deadly reductionist trap should not discourage architectural critics from pursuing more refined investigations into how economic and political power help shape how buildings are made, and not simply how they come to be. Needless to say, Manfredo Tefuri's Architecture and Utopia, Design and Capitalist Development, book from 1973, 
is a move in this direction, yet even this work stays a bit too far removed from the ground where detailed historical work should focus. A plausible objection to this line of reasoning is that architectural critics do not have the historical and analytical training to do such analyses. So it is better to leave this work to be done by cultural historians and even economists. This objection leads us to the crucial issue of the political legitimacy of architectural critics, namely, why are they trained as they are, how are they reproduced, and what set of assumptions about history, economics, culture, and art inform the curriculum and faculties that educate them. Gone are the days of Montgomery Schuler, George Shepard Ch Chappelle, and the great Louis Mumford. The professionalization of architectural criticism, which has its own traps of insular jargon, codes, and etiquette for the initiated, requires genealogies of the changing frameworks and paradigms that become dominant at particular historical moments and of how these frameworks and paradigms yield insights and blindness for those who work within them. These genealogies should highlight not simply the dynamic changes of influential critical perspectives in the academy, but also how these perspectives shape and are shaped by the actual building of edifices, and how these perspectives relate to other significant cultural practices. For instance, painting in Le Corbusier's early work and populism in Venturi's thought. What Aaron Betsky calls the trivialization of the intellectual profession, and James Wine dubs its failure of vision, must be unpacked by means of structural and institutional analyses of what goes into molding architects and their critics. It's big. It's a big one there. Do you think, like, who who are these architectural critics? Well, it, that's what I was, yeah, that's I just what I was kind of assume that architectural critics are architects. Yes, absolutely. But it this kind of suggests that there's this... Like, like you separate could go thing to altogether. Yeah. And take architectural criticism, which isn't really I mean, something I've ever seen. There's uh, like in art history, you can take. Art that's history. what I was gonna say. Architectural historian. Um, is that the word? Um, another thing, just on these critics. That's a very good point. I was curious about that as well. I like the uh, sentence there. Why are they trained as they are? How are they reproduced? And what set of assumptions about history, economics, culture, and art inform the curriculum and faculties that educate them? These are the questions I'm going to posit to my critics this afternoon. Oh. Who are you? What kind of education do you have <laughs> to be judging me? You know? Yeah. Economics, you know, I just want to see, yeah, I want to see how... Where, yeah, like, where are you coming from? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just turn it around a little bit, so... Um, but, yeah, no, I, I... It's an interesting, interesting paragraph. In this way, the issue of political legitimacy of architecture is posed neither in a nostalgic, moralistic manner that translates the will of an epoch into space, nor in a sophomoric, nihilistic mode that promotes an easy and lucrative despair. Rather, the challenge is to try to understand architectural practices as power-laden cultural practices that are deeply affected by larger historical forces, for instance, markets, the state, the academy, but also as practices that have their own specificity and social effects, even if they are not the kind of effects one approves of. This is why the kind of Miesian nostalgia of Robert Kimball will not suffice. The political legitimacy of architecture is linked to an even deeper issue, the intellectual crisis in architectural criticism. The half-century predominance of the international style in architecture left critics with little room to maneuver Robert Venturi's groundbreaking Complexity and Contradiction from 1966, 
with its empirical, relativistic, and anti-Platonic approach, created new space for critics. Yet its treatment of the semantic dimension of architecture remained wedded to the Olympian Platon <laughs> Platonism of the great modernists. That is, his truncated perspective covered only the conventional styles and extrinsic factors such as poor design. As Alan Colquhoun perceptively notes, the book does not exclude the possibility that the general principles of the modern movement were sound and might still form the basis of a complex and subtle architecture. Yet Venturi indeed opened Pandora's box. Architectural criticism has been a towel of Babel ever since. A towel of Babel? Towel. Not like tower? <laughs> yeah, I think so. That is actually what it said, and I didn't even think like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that. Yeah, the great towel. Of, I mean, it could be wrong. <laughs> no, but... definitely. It yeah. says towel of Babel, so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe they're Hard criticism of the towel of Babel. <laughs> Structurally, just weak. Yeah, maybe that's what they're trying to say. Yeah. Maybe it is supposed to say towel. Oh, I wonder, yeah. Like, envelope, not just fabric as an envelope. Not be <laughs> Anyways, got a pin up coming. The intellectual crisis in architectural criticism is primarily rooted in the modernist promotion of what Lewis Mumford called the myth of the medicine. Machine. Machine. The myth <laughs> of the machine. <laughs> the myth of the medicine. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, this myth is not simply an isolated aesthetic ideology, but rather a pervasive sociocultural phenomenon that promotes expert scientific knowledge and elaborate bureaucratic structures that facilitate the five Ps. Power, productivity for profit, political control, and publicity. Architecture is distinct from the other arts in that it is associated in its own modernist avant-garde movements, its formalism and newness with the myth of the machine. For Kalkuhun, quote, I guess, modern architecture conflated absolute formalism with the actual productive forces of society. There was in modern architecture an overlap between 19th century instrumentalism and modernist formalism, which did not occur in any of the other arts. This is why modernism in architecture enthusiastically embraced technology in an excessive utopian manner, whereas modernism in literature put a premium on myth over against science and technology in a dystopian way. Le Corbusier, with his complex bundle of tensions between architecture's machine production and architecture as intuitive expression, proclaimed in his epic-making manifesto towards a new architecture of 1923. Fantastic read, by the way. Have you read that? I have, yeah. Nice. It's a good one. Yeah, it's very, he's very sassy in that. It's like, oh. he's really throwing it down like uh, 1920 style and just being like, no one knows anything. I know everything. And, uh, cool. yeah. Well, yeah, I, that'd I, be an I interesting follow, yeah. read. Sort of interrupt. That's okay. Yeah. So, in Towards a New Architecture, he says, the modern age is spread before them, engineers and others, Sparking a radiant, sparkling and radiant, sorry. Yet James Joyce's Stephen in Ulysses of 1922 sees history as a nightmare from which he is trying to awake, and T.S. Eliot proceeds in his review of Joyce's text, modern history as in, quote, immense panorama of futility and anarchy. Mm. My point here is not simply that the early Le Corbusier and fellow modernists in architecture were naive and duped, but more importantly, that the distinctive development of architecture produced such, a, such an idealized, idealizing of technology and industry. 
The subsequent collapse of this utopianism into a sheer productivism of a platonic formalism that sustains an architectural monumentality, as in the genius of Ludwig Wies van der Rohe, transplanted from Germany to Chicago, set the framework of our present intellectual crisis in architectural criticism. Needless to say, the call for irony and ambiguity that focuses on the symbolic content, not space or structure, in the populism of Robert Venturi, the forms of historical eclecticism in the postmodernism of Charles Jenks, or the plea for communication in the public art of James Wine's de-architecture, provide inadequate responses to this crisis. This is primarily because all three provocative responses fail to grasp on a deeper level the content and character of the larger cultural crisis of our time. The recent appropriations of the ironic skepticism of Jacques Derrida, as in the provocative writings of Peter Eisenman, and the genealogical materialism of Michael Foucault, as with the criticism of Anthony Vidler and Michael Hayes, if you can keep track of all those names, you must <laughs> know like, them. I need to go read <laughs> yeah. a library full of books before yeah. I back to this. Room. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of references here that absolutely take a little bit more of a thorough background than I have. <laughs> yeah, um, PhD is more like it. Yeah, I could, I could use one of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so skeptical of Jacques Derrida can be viewed as the awakening of architectural criticism to the depths of our cultural crisis. Although deconstructivist architecture is, as Mark Wrigley rightly observes, more an extension of and deviation from Russian constructionism than a blanket architectural application of Dorita's thought, it does force architectural critics to put forward their own conception of the current cultural crisis, even if it seems to amount to mere sloganeering about the end, a quote, the end of Western metaphysics, end quote, or the omnipresence of, quote, the disciplinary order, end quote. <laughs> In short, the French invasion of architectural criticism, 20 years after a similar fair and literary criticism, has injected new energy and excitement into a discipline suffering a cultural lag. Yet this invasion has led many architectural critics to the most deadly of traps, the loss of identity as architectural critics. <laughs> the assimilation of architectural criticism into literary criticism, or the immersion of architectural objects into larger cultural practices has led, in many cases, to a loss of the specificity of architectural practices and objects. Such a loss results in the loss of architectural dimension of what architectural critics do. The major virtue of the French invasion is that new possibilities, heretofore foreclosed, are unleashed. The vice is that architectural critics lose their identity and focus primarily on academicist perspectives on the larger crisis of our culture, a focus that requires a deeper knowledge of history, economics, sociology, and so on, that most architectural critics have or care to pursue. My point here is not that this task should be abandoned by architectural critics. Rather, I am claiming that what architectural critics do know the specificity of the diverse traditions of architectural practice, from the nitty-gritty matters of calculations to artistic styles, perspectives, visions, and links to structures of power, should inform how we understand the present cultural crisis. None of us have the definitive understanding of the complex cultural crisis that confronts us, though some views are better than others. My own view is that an appropriate starting point is a re-examination of what the modernist valorized, the myth of the machine. Hence, the work of Lewis Mumford is indispensable. 
Yet, since faith in progress by means of expanding productive forces, be it the liberal or Marxist version, is a secular illusion, the myth of the machine must be questioned in new ways. This questioning must go far beyond a playful explosion of modernist formalism, which heralds ornamentation and decoration of past heroic efforts, must also be more than a defense of the autonomy of architectural discourse in the guise of its textualization, an outdated avant-gardist gesture in a culture that now thrives and survives in such fashionable and faddish gestures. I uh, just want to take a quick the myth break of the machine. to check yeah. out what this myth of the machine is. Mm. A uh, quick Wikipedia search says that the, the myth of, of the machine is a two-volume book taking an in-depth look at the forces that have shaped modern technology since prehistoric times. The first volume, Technics in Human Development, was published in 1967, followed by the second volume, The Pentagon of Power, <laughs> in 1970. The author, Lewis Mumford, shows that the parallel developments between human tools and social organization, mainly through language and rituals. It is considered a synthesis of many theories Mumford developed throughout his prolific writing career. So, um, looking a little further, reading ahead as you were reading, <laughs> yes, we see it's explained a little further in the term mega-machine, which hasn't come up in our text yet. Um, but here it says, in the myth of the machine, Mumford insisted upon the reality of the mega machine, which is the convergence of science, economics, or science economy, uh, techniques, and political power as an unfilled community of unified, unified, yeah, <laughs> of interpretation, rendering useless and eccentric life-enhancing values. It's a combination of all these. It sounds like um, where we're finding this coming to the reading is when they're saying how critics need to have this whole background, this really diverse economic thing, and like together, maybe that's the mega machine, or maybe mm -hmm. that's the myth, the machine isn't like, you can't just have one thing, you've got to have everything maybe? Or... Yeah, I don't know, there's a lot of depth to this reading, <laughs> I feel like I need to spend more time looking up all these other people that he's talking about. If but only we had it. If, if only, only we had it, if only we had that time. in 20 minutes, so. Nice. Where were we? Good question. Um, Rather uh, fattish gestures is where I left off. Okay, yeah. Rather, the demystifying of the machine can proceed, thanks in part, to the insights of post-structuralist analyses by examining the second term in the binary opposition of machine nature, civilized primitive, ruler-ruled, Apollonian Dionysian, mm. male-female, white-black, in relation to architectural practices. This examination should neither be a mechanical deconstructive operation that stays on the discursive surfaces at the expense of an analysis of structural and institutional dynamics of power, nor should it result in a mere turning of the tables that trashes the first terms in the binary oppositions. Rather, what is required is a sophisticated architectural historical inquiry into how these notions operate in the complex formulations of diverse and developing discourses and practices of actual architects, architects and critics. Such an inquiry presupposes precisely what contemporary architectural criticism shuns, a distinctive architectural histi historiography that sheds light on the emergence and development of the current cultural crises, crisis as it shapes and is shaped by architectural practices. As Mark 
Yarzenbeck rightly states, Architects have read too many history books and have not done enough on-location history of their own. It used to be, from the Renaissance on, that architects told the historians what was important about a building of the past and what was not. Now it is historians who tell architects. That, ar that architects so willingly give up their birthright marks, perhaps, the dawning of a new age in architectural history. The pre-modern, post-modern use the past to create a historiogra historiographic understanding of the present. Once the ancient ruins had all been studied and the archaeologists took over, the modernists were free to turn the same historiographic principles used by earlier generations against history itself. The postmodern historicists now use history to kill historiography. I'm not really sure what historiography is. No, it sounds like um, it sounds like a good time, though. You know what I mean? It's like it's a nice combination. Okay. Anyway, there so, may oh, yes. there may not be much left to talk about when the next generation of architects come along. I'm gonna read a couple of these here. Now. Okay. Yeah. Um, these remarks hold from the Adorno-informed pessimism of Tafuri through the presentist populism of Venturi to the classical postmodernism of Jenks. The major challenge of new architectural historiography is that its conception of the past and present be attuned to the complex role of difference, nature, primitive, rural, Dionysian, female, black, and so on. In this sense, the recent talk about the end of architecture, the exhaustion of the architectural transition, and the loss of architecture as a social force and so on, is a parochial and nostalgic talk about the particular consensus and its circumstances that indeed no longer exists. This consensus rests upon certain governing myths, the machine, and narratives, Eurocentric ones, uh, design strategies, urban building efforts, and styles phallocentric monuments <laughs> that's understand um, that no longer aesthetically convince or effectively function for us this us is a diverse and heterogene heterogeneous one not just for architects and their critics so just quickly historiography is the study of historical writing or the writing of history yeah I kind of to just like taking history that has been written as Fact, I guess. Right, it's like, what else, like, what more can I do towards this without actually doing it? It's like studying the study. Yeah, or actually the, the act of... The act of studying. The act of writing history is also historiography, I Well, think. wouldn't that be like a, like more of a sociologist type thing, though? I don't know. Well, it just, it just says the study of historical writing, but then it also says the writing of history. Yeah, they're pretty... Oh. Wikipedia says it's the study of the methods of historians in developing history as an academic discipline. A lot of layers so, to that onion. It's like the study of how you wrote history, I guess. Mm. Actually, I liked there in the section you read when they were talking about the um, transfer from architects telling historians to historians telling architects. Yeah, and that's that was kind really of uh, cool. yeah, it's kind of because I mean the reality is that we can't go to all these places and experience them. No, and directly. people have, and yeah, and that's you know. but you would definitely experience them differently. Like, if you just went there and you hadn't read, these are all the important things you right. need to know about it, you have a totally different experience. Which is, it's obviously has a value to it, because you're not going to be as pigeonholed in the way that you view something, but it's almost kind of like, to me, um, 
saying that you know I'm gonna create great architecture, but I'm not gonna look at anybody's other architecture because yeah, I don't no, want to be influenced sure. by it. You know, yeah. like you kind of gotta have. You have to have both. Yeah, a nice little mix. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, ideally, it'd be nice to go see these places and then study about them and then go back and like see what. Right. Like, see the difference. Yeah. yeah. I don't private jets, so. Not yet. <laughs> so I'm just gonna continue reading about architecture. <laughs> nice. The case of the great Le Corbusier may serve as an illustration. His serious grappling with the binary oppositions above reaches a saturation point in his critique of the classical theory of architectural design, Trivius, in the form of the modular. This new form of measure device, of measure derived not just from the proportions of the human figure, but more specifically from women's bodies, especially fat, primitive, quote, uncivilized, non-European, Dionysian-driven, black, brown, and red women's bodies. I thought his modular was based on, like, a six-foot-tall man. Yeah, I've got no idea where this is coming from. Yeah, I, uh, but maybe there's more to it. It is no secret that Le Corbusier's paintings and pencil sketches in the early 30s began to focus on the shapes of women's bodies highlighting the curves of buttocks and shoulder arches. This preoccupation is often viewed as a slow shift from a machine aesthetic to a, na- to a nature aesthetic, like Picasso's use of primitive art to revitalize the art of the new epoch. Corbusier turns toward female and third world sources for demystifying, not simply displacing, the myth of the machine he had earlier heralded. Corbusier's move toward these sources was not a simple rejection of the myth of the machine. As Charles Jenks notes, Le Corbusier found in Negro music, in the hot jazz of Louis Armstrong, implacable exactitude, mathematics, equilibrium on a tightrope, and all the masculine virtues of the machine. In regard to Josephine Baker's performance on board the Julius Caesar on a trip to South America in 1929, Le Corbusier writes... In a stupid variety show, Josephine Baker sang Baby with such an intense and dramatic sensibility that I was moved to tears. There is, in this American Negro music, a lyrical contemporary mass so invincible that I could see the foundation of a new sentiment of music capable of being the expression of a new epoch and also capable of classifying its European origins as Stone Age, just as has happened with the new architecture. Although Baker is, for Le Corbusier, a small child, pure, simple, and limpid, more than mere European male paternalism at work here, rather he is, he is also in search of new forms of space, proportion, structure, and order in light of the products, bodies, and sensibilities of those subsumed under the second terms of the aforementioned binary oppositions, natural, primitive, ruled, Dionysian, female, and peoples of color. I look for primitive men, not in their barbarity, but for their wisdom. The columns of a building should be like the strong, curvaceous thighs of a woman. I like the skin of women. Classic, Thanks, classic, classic. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, he's uh, he was like uh, like a nudist as well, wasn't he? Or like Le Corbusier? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Who like big time picture of Luke Cam. Yeah, yeah, I remember Cam that. Had that. Yeah. <laughs> So like, Hilarious. so he's very into uh, natural form and stuff like that, which is he was in, in his late career. 
Like, right. This is what kind of they're talking about. Yeah, all the naked pictures I've seen of him is super old. <laughs> <laughs> super wrinkly white <laughs> Yeah, classic. <laughs> Hopefully one day. Um, <laughs> For sure. Le Cabousier's Rochon Chapel in eastern France. <laughs> I could say that is like America's possum. <laughs> yeah. Le Corbusier's Ron Champ Chapel in eastern France. The Unité at Marseille and his Carpenter Center at Harvard all bear this so-called brutalist stamp. Like Mumford's subtle nostalgia for a medieval garden village, Corbusier's search for non-European and female sources was intimately linked to his conception of architectural practices as forms of and means for collective life, a life he associated first and foremost with hierarchical religious communities such as the monistic order of the Carthusians. The efforts of Le Corbusier's middle period can be neither imitated nor emulated. Yet his gallant yet flawed attempt to come to terms with difference with those constituted as other must inform any new architectural historiography in our post-colonial world and post-modern culture of mega-machines, oh, there we go. Mm -hmm. multinational corporations, nation-states, and fragmented communities. Where then do we go from here? Well, <laughs> the future of architectural criticism, in my opinion, rests on the development of a refined and revisionist architectural historiography that creatively fuses social histories of architectural practices and social histories of technology in light of sophisticated interpretations of the present cultural crisis. This historiography must be informed by the current theoretical debates in the larger discourse of cultural criticism. Yet the benefits of these debates are in the enabling of methodological insights that facilitate history writing and cultural analysis of analyses of specific past and present architectural practices, not ontological and epistemological conclusions that promote mere avant-gardist posturing. Theory is not historiography, though no historiography escapes theory. Yet the present obsession with theory must now yield to theory-laden historiography if architectural criticism is to have any chance of grasping the past that now engulfs us. There are no guarantees for any resolutions, but there are certain routes that weaken our efforts to move beyond this fascinating and possibly fecund? Fecund. Fecund? What does that mean? Is that, isn't that like fertile kind of? Oh, I don't know. And possibly fecund moment in architectural criticism. So, yes. Producing or capable of producing an abundance of offspring or new there growth. Go. There you go. Okay, so cultural criticism and race. Well, was, yeah, I am gonna have to listen to this podcast like maybe three more times. <laughs> yeah, to really to get try it. to grasp what just went on there. But I don't think I've heard either of us say architectural or arch or architect that many times in a reading. What really. about historiography? That one is in uh, a bit of a running game with the territorialism and region <laughs> territorialism, yeah. that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, we got to go. Yeah, That's we have things. to get down to the exhibition room. That's so sweet. thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Travis Cook Young. I'm Andrew Zillow. And, uh, yeah, we'll check you out on the next one. Yeah, see ya. Yeah.